Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. These pretzels are making me thirsty. Conversations about collaboration, episode 44. Michael Peachy joins me. He is the VP of user experience at Ring Central. We discuss design, collaboration personas, maker time versus manager time, and unified communications. Let's get it on. Michael, where does this pod find you? I'm in uh, the Bay Area, Belmont, California, just south of San Francisco. And I see that you're in the office. Yes, I am. We're doing a little experiment where uh, some of us are returning to the office while the majority of the people are still uh, working from wherever they happen to be. Yeah, kind of a microcosm for what's going on now, huh? Exactly. Uh, you know, I run a design organization here at Ring Central, so we're all about um, experiments and, you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So this is one of our experiments. You joined five years ago, and I'm really curious. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset in 2016, 2017 about this nascent trend of working remotely versus now and then versus the future? I would imagine that what you're doing has to have some sort of design implication, right, from occasionally working remotely to primarily working remotely or never being in the office at all, right? Sure. So a uh, great question. I feel like uh... – I've lived several lifetimes in the last five years, as, as you can imagine. You know, I'd say from uh, the time I joined up until, you know, the end of 2019, we really thought about our products as a way for people to collaborate between office locations. You know, how do you make sure that your people in Chicago or Paris are collaborating, communicating well with your people in San Francisco and Berlin? Uh, so, you know, very much about that office to office communication. You know, we always pictured people at their desks. Uh, you know, then, of course, in March of 2020, when everybody got sent home, uh, the, the whole world changed the way they thought about collaborating. And it was all about collaborating from someone's kitchen table to, you know, a desk in somebody else's bedroom someplace else. And uh, that really affected how we design our products. I'm more familiar with Zoom than I am with Ring Central, but I don't know if there's a parallel in the Ring Central world. But it occurred to me that some of the specific features that Zoom or Teams or Slack have added stem from this new reality. Just as one example, with Zoom, the ability to blur your background, you might have thought, well, if you're in the office, who cares? But if you're at home and they're your kids, right, you might not want to show a 10 year old on screen at work for whatever reason, right? Is that something that only those companies have experienced, or is that something from a design perspective, other vendors have had to deal with as well? I think everybody's got virtual backgrounds and, and my preference is the blurred background, right? I don't really need to see people sitting on a beach, but it is nice when people can blur out backgrounds. Uh, and our research was really interesting on that. When uh, work from home started, uh, there was a real difference between you know, those people who are lucky enough to have an office in their house with kind of a nice professional background. And then there was somebody else who was working, you know, from uh, their bed sitting in a pile of dirty laundry or with a baby in the background or kids around in their their classes and stuff. And that virtual background, the blurring of the background really kind of helped level that playing field. 
so that when you're communicating with people, you didn't get that kind of automatic perception of, you know, professional versus non-professional just based on what somebody had. That's an easy fix, but you and I both know that the longer-term challenge is getting everyone on equal playing field because of the natural bias we have. And I've read a bunch of articles about this, certainly over the last two to three months, as hybrid work has become more of a reality. How do you treat remote folks the same as the people who are there? The human inclination is that, oh, I see Michael, he's working, right? Therefore, he's more valuable than Phil, who's not in the office, right? Out of sight, out of mind. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So as, as we look at our customers and we do our research, uh, we see this hybrid, the future of work, where we're going, where some people are in the office and some people is remote, uh, is a very different and much, much harder problem than the work from home was. You know, at least with work from home, everybody was remote. Everybody had to figure out how to make it work. Everybody had to get a good Internet connection at home. Uh, but now in the hybrid world, um, there there's real opportunity and challenge. So, you know, the opportunity of the hybrid world is that people can optimize their experience. You know, those people that would prefer to be remote because of their commute, they're taking care of an older parent or a child. And those people who want to be in the work, the workplace because they're super distractible. They just like the community and the people around them. Um, you know, how are teams going to get 100% out of everybody? And then you mentioned that stigma that exists from prior to the pandemic and still exists a lot today where, you know, hey, if you're in the office, you must be working hard because you're here for eight or nine hours and I can see you doing stuff versus if you're remote, I don't really have any idea. You know, maybe you're still walking around in your bunny slippers. Uh, we're also seeing this other kind of um, uh judgment that happens where in some cultures and organizations, the people going back into the office are somehow seen as less, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're remote first, but the people who are saying, oh, I want to be in the office uh, are kind of looked at a little funny by the remote workers. Uh, mm -hmm. So we see uh, a real challenge there. Yeah. I, there's so many different dimensions, this problem. And it's why I started the podcast and wrote my most recent book. I was recently reading in article on entrepreneur.com. And the author of the article, CEO of a startup, I forget which one, but he was referencing, I think it was either Ben Horowitz or Paul Graham, but a famous 2008, 2009 blog post delineating between maker time and manager time. And mm -hmm. the guy in the entrepreneur piece was arguing that fundamentally that issue still haunts us because if you are a quote unquote maker, right, you embrace this mindset of being able to work anywhere because you are making something. Whereas if you're a manager, right, you're overseeing the people who make things and this makes you uncomfortable because you can't see them work or you may annoy them with constant DMs in, in certain name of collaboration hub. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I definitely know that original article that you're talking about with uh, the maker time. Um, I run a global design organization. So I've got about 100 designers and researchers and content strategists uh, that need to collaborate globally in four or five different time zones. Um, we talk about it a little differently. There's maker time and meeting time because even the, you know, an individual designer, even if they're not a manager, there's still meetings they need to be in. And, you know, meetings are interesting because they start when the big hands on the 12, they end when the big hands on the six or the 12, uh, you know, they don't go, you know, 65 minutes or 55 minutes. They run in that chunk. Whereas the maker time for people who haven't read the post 
is that creative, more serendipitous work that people go in, um, particularly important in design. A lot of the thinking that happens, we talk about soak time, work on a problem for a while actively, take a break, go for a walk, wash the dishes, fold the laundry. Your mind's still churning on the problem, but it's not time bound. Uh, we don't really see a correlation um, between being in the office and being remote for maker time. So, um, you know, in the office, we've got design studios, we've got huddle rooms, we've got places where people can go and do that maker kind of activity. So, uh, you know, right next door to my office that I'm sitting in right now, we've got a design studio with beanbag chairs and a sofa and a coffee machine and, you know, bar stools and a table to sit at and a lot of whiteboards. Um, sometimes in there, it'll be a lively discussion with five or six people all at a whiteboard. Sometimes I'll walk in there, there'll be a half dozen people with headphones on working independently, but they're in there to get that maker time that you're talking about, even though it's in the, uh, the office space. I'm intrigued about the intersection among the following design, technology, collaboration, and this new work environment. It's a fascinating issue to me because as someone who's written a couple of books about Slack and Zoom and uses Microsoft Teams, I take it for granted that people know the advanced features, right? And many times they don't. I'll show someone a feature and they go, how did you do that? Um, so I can see the benefit of a software vendor nudging people to use a particular tool to get people out of their comfort zone. So just as a one example, when people equate, say, Slack to email, that drives me crazy because I can customize my Slack notifications in a far more granular way than I ever could with email, right? But a lot of people don't know that. So the question becomes from a design point of view, do you start to encourage people to use them or does that in fact annoy folks because they said, look, I just want to send a message and get notified about to get a return. I don't care all of these options. I don't think there's a right answer, but talk a little bit about that tension, if you will. Sure. So what you're talking about there are different personas and we need to design products that are going to work for everybody. So, you know, the person you're talking about that just wants to send a message, they're not going to dig into the settings for send later and remind me if somebody doesn't reply. They're not going to install tools like Boomerang into their Gmail that lets them get some really fine grained control over stuff. They just want to type a message and send it out. And for them, it doesn't matter if it's three in the morning when the message arrives. You know, these are the people in Slack that are that are at mentioning an entire channel and it's ringing all around the planet in the middle of the night. There are other people who want to fine tune everything. You know, I fall into that camp. Uh, you know, I've got teams all over the world. Uh, you know, really common use cases. I think about something. It's like, oh, I got to go tell somebody that, you know, but it's the middle of the night for them. And uh, so I send the message and they haven't turned off their notifications. So it wakes up their family. You know, or I send a message out because it's 11 o'clock my time and somebody else gets it. They look at it and they're like, oh, this must be important. You wouldn't have messaged me. So they reply. Then I reply. And all of a sudden, the two of us are in a conversation that nobody wants to be in. So if you can fine tune that with a send later, so it drops in their inbox at 8 a.m., that's great. So we've got to design our products for both. You know, how do you get it to be easy for somebody when they first come in? And then if they want more, how do they kind of level up? into those those more advanced features and let them fine-tune their presence. Right, and not be creepy, right? Because you and yeah. I both know that you can track what people are doing, and sometimes you say, wow, that's eerily relevant. Um, mm -hmm. are my, in fact, uh, as we're recording this, I, I don't know if you heard the um, news that uh, LinkedIn, sorry, um, 
I heard it on LinkedIn, but Netflix had canned a couple of executives because they were bad mouthing management on Slack. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it interesting that some people say, oh, here's another reason that I shouldn't use Slack. I just stick with email. Well, both are company-owned tools, and people have been fired for sending inappropriate uh, images and messages. Um, I mean, is it just simply a matter of, in some cases, people looking for a reason not to get off of email, even though I would argue to my dying day that email is not a collaboration tool? Uh, email is definitely not a collaboration tool. Email is a messaging tool that allows you to, to time shift to do things asynchronously. And Slack is very similar, except with some, some more fine tuning. Um, I think there are people who um, don't feel the need to move off of the things that work for them. You know, yesterday was just fine using email. Tomorrow's gonna be just fine using email. Why do I need to put the effort into changing? You know, I think there are other people that are out there that are uh, always looking for ways to, to optimize their experience. You know, how do I do more with less? Uh, you know, and those two camps don't really understand each other. You know, one camp looks at it like, why would you spend four hours trying to figure out if something's going to save you five minutes? You know, I'm just going to stick with email. And the other camp's like, why do you want to be a dinosaur? Uh, you know, they're probably both right and both wrong. It depends on your org and your personality. I definitely fall into the latter camp because I can remember this going back to my you know, database development days. I might spend two hours on something that I could manually fix in five minutes because it's with 10 or 20 records. But I said, what if it's 10 or 20,000? Right? Mm-hmm. So learning how to do this you know, is just an order of magnitude different when it's a, a different data set. Um, my limited interaction with designers is it um, teaches me that they are very much open to using collaborative tools, right? Whether it's Figma, whether it's Slack, whether it's a Google Doc, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, as someone who's responsible for 100 people, do you have a lot of problems getting back to the personas, getting those folks to get on board with collaboration tool, or do those folks basically just get it? I think that um, the hallmark of a good designer is, is are two things. One is the vulnerability to admit that you don't actually know how to solve a problem when that problem is first presented to you, but having the, the tenacity to keep trying until you do figure out a, an answer, right? You know, it's, uh, if it were an easy problem, you wouldn't need a designer to go figure it out. Um, the other piece is that design is by nature a collaborative exercise. You know, there's, there's no way that the first idea that comes into one person's brain is the right answer. There's something wrong with it. The trick is to figure out what's wrong with it very quickly. And the fastest way to do that is to be bouncing your ideas off of other people. So we do a lot of collaborative exercise. You know, when somebody brings me a a new idea, a solution to an old problem in a new way, my first question is always, well, who else have you talked to about this? Because if they haven't talked to anybody about it, it's probably not very well refined at that point. If they have talked to a group of people, it's it's advanced, you know. Mm-hmm. So, two designers working for an hour together get more done than two designers working an hour each by themselves. Interesting. I think about when I first started writing books, and I would send maybe an email to my cover designer with an attachment of a very crude mock-up and say Microsoft Word or even a drawing, a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And more recently, I started doing screen sharing. I started using Canva. And Mm -hmm. we'll just get on Zoom and share screen and I will point out something or I will, and I'm not great at design, but I have learned a few things over the years. And it's just remarkable to me how much more fluidly it goes because I can say, hey, here's one idea or one of the things that I really like doing in Canva when I'm 
um, kind of riffing on a design concept that covers for one of my books, create almost this storyboard. And I can see a design evolve over time and go, okay, I got off on the wrong track here on design number four, did a couple of iterations, but by version eight said, okay, let's scrap all that, but I keep it because mm-hmm. it's almost this, um, uh, not memento, but the snapshot of what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And then when I show that to my, my cover designer is a good friend of mine, that might give him this idea. So I, I would agree with you. There is this kind of magic that yes, can happen in person. And maybe it's not quite the same, but getting back to your point about email, I just, I, I don't get excited when I see an email attachment, but when I see a mock-up and we're sharing the screen and if he's using mm-hmm. one of the Adobe creative suite tools, because we're clearly moving beyond Canva at that point, I, I mean, this is to me how one plus one can equal three. Exactly. So I think what you're getting at there is the power of shifting between real time and asynchronous collaboration. So core in the way that we design our Ring Central products are the way to move from team messaging. So Ring Central's core product is messaging plus telephony plus video, screen share, all of that in one integrated product. Um, you know, kind of like a Slack plus phone plus Zoom except all in one thing. So what our customers enjoy, their users enjoy, is that seamless shifting that you're talking about. So you can start a conversation in messaging, which is async. Hey, I've got an idea, take a look at it, what do you think? Or you know, somebody coming back and going, hey, I looked at your thing, X, Y, Z. You're going back and forth, and then you're like, well, you know what would be better would be a real-time conversation here. So with one button, boom, the two of you are in a screen share, you're in a video chat. So now you've got that high bandwidth real-time conversation, which will then go back into a messaging store and forward async conversation where you might follow up on a couple different things. We put a couple of uh, really cool new features in the product. My my favorite one is the the huddle room, which recreates that office serendipity. So, um, you know, just kind of extend your book cover analogy a little bit. Maybe there are four or five people working on that book cover. You got a little team in your messaging app and you're all working on that that book cover. So you're trading some messages back and forth. There's some video recordings. You got some comps you're sharing with each other. Uh, The way Huddle works, it's like a dedicated meeting space just for that team. So maybe you and your, your buddy that are doing the designs jump into an online collaboration and then somebody else who's working on it sees in the app, oh, Phil and whoever they are, are talking about it. I wonder what they're up to. Just like when you're in the office and you see a couple of the people you work with kind of at a table in the cafe or in a conference room, you can stick your head in and say hi. You know, so they jump in like, what are you guys working on? Oh, we're doing this. And then they can decide like, hey, that sounds super interesting. I'm not doing anything. Let me jump in and help. Or yeah, it seems like you guys got that. I'm out. I'll, I'll see you later. And it recreates that, that serendipity of just kind of stumbling into something and collaborating when you want, how you want in the application. And you're talking about keeping the momentum going right? mm-hmm. because someone might say, look, I'd love to continue, but I got to feed my kid. Right? Exactly. But I'd love to jump back in. And it almost reminds me in a way of some of the other design work that I've engaged with. There's a company called Design, uh, a lot like 99designs. You basically can crowdsource. So mm-hmm. I have a, a need for a logo for a book publishing company. And you're going to get great ideas and terrible ideas and a whole bunch of things in between. Uh, now that you're doing that on a one-on-one basis, because once people see a design, they can copy it, say it's theirs, whatever. But uh, I mean, to me, design, and, and I'm certainly no expert on it, uh, 
would benefit from additional people. Now they're diminishing returns because something tells me you don't have a hundred people working on one project because mm-hmm. again, not being an expert, some of it has to be subjective. And you may find that you know, revision 27 is a lot like revision two. And, and maybe that's even a good thing because you have more confidence in your idea, right? Yeah. So we, um, you can kind of think about it like concentric circles you know, we got a you know a couple, three, four people who all work on the same part of a product, and they've got a lot of shared domain knowledge, um, and they can collaborate on how they do something. Um, on you know a weekly basis, that group and four or five other small squads like that, these little pods working on things, will share their stuff with each other. Is an opportunity to to get feedback, give feedback, maybe see an interesting way to solve a problem which is relevant to you. And then globally with our different offices in Ukraine and St. Petersburg and China, we get together on a biweekly or monthly basis in that larger tribe of people, again, to do that knowledge sharing and the rest of it. So not all hundred people can do the same thing, but they're doing the same kinds of things that can inspire each other. Good stuff. I'll get you out of here on this, Michael. What book are you currently reading? Uh, I'm actually rereading uh, Ready Player One. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the book. Read the uh, book, didn't see the movie, and I heard that Ready Player Two was mixed. Yeah, I, so I've read I've read both. I've got to say, Ready Player Two uh, was not as great as Ready Player One. Uh, but I, I rereading Ready Player One with my nine year old son. It's his first time through it, so it's uh, I get to see it through his eyes. But uh, great book. Does he get a lot of the '80s video game references? No, I got to explain a lot of that stuff to him. And he's, he kind of looks at me like, wait, so it, like the character was only like four pixels by four pixels. And I'm like, it was great. It kind of looked like a dragon. And uh, so he's he's learning that. Good stuff, Michael. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for your, uh, the opportunity. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However... If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.